Hey everybody, welcome back to another awesome Different Church podcast. My name is Jarrett. I just want to say how's it going? And with me as always is Hannah. Say what's up, Hannah. Hello, friends. So we are recording today on a very gray looking day outside. And I feel like it's like really apropos for Revelation. Um, I feel like the Lord could come back in the clouds right now. Isn't that the point of the New Testament, though? The Lord could come back at any point and surprise everyone. Yeah, when you least expect it. Mm-hmm. Were you... And so it's super gray outside, but it's also really hot. Yeah. That's what I imagine hell, hell to be like, <laughs> gray and hot. Whenever you were younger, were you one of those Christians who was like uh, afraid Jesus was going to come back before you got married? Yes, I was terrified of that. Uh, my church was one who preached the rapture a lot, <laughs> and I didn't even realize that my own family didn't believe in that until like years into it, and they were just like, oh yeah, we don't cause waves, we don't believe in that. And I was like, oh, you, you could have told me that we, <laughs> I like I've literally been praying like, Jesus, don't come back because I want to get married and know what it's like to have a life. <laughs> yeah, number one, like, you know, they could have told you that was an option. But also, mm-hmm. number two, how weird is it that, like, so many of us were just like, please don't come back until I get married because, like, I won't be a full and complete human until I'm married or something? Like, what a weird, like, thought to have about your own life. Yeah, and it's completely invalid. <laughs> of yeah. course, I mean, you're a full and complete human. It, having a companion is wonderful, but... Um, And I think most people are built to kind of want that at some point in their life, but there's plenty of people who don't need that. And I think that's fine too. I think that's the whole podcast right there. Boom. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. No, no, we have to do Revelation chapter three. We have three more churches to get into. Okay. I'm excited to rip these three churches a new one today. (laughs) I'm ready to rock when you are. Okay, so um, the first, there's three churches. So we have Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea left to talk about. And so the first church is verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. So I'll go ahead and read that, and then we'll discuss. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. (laughs) Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. I just, I feel like that is like the, the letter to the American evangelical mega church. Ooh, why? The, the whole bit about, yeah, the, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. So yeah, I don't (laughs) want to like, (laughs) I don't want to just, you know, totally dunk on every single mega church ever. Uh, I'm sure there are some really good ones, but um, 
I think that we all uh, have seen churches that look like, you know, hey, oh, we're just so excited and we're just going to do life and we're going to love on you and blah, blah, blah. And it, they seem like they've got a whole lot going on. But, you know, underneath the hood, they're kind of not doing so hot. Yeah, it's really interesting because it's there's some people who completely reject mega churches as like even a concept. They're like, that's not the biblical. That's not the New Testament church. We got to just meet in houses and have groups of 12. Right. And then there's some people who only would be interested in going to a mega church. But it's very not that true spiritual growth cannot happen in a church that is large in size. That's not to disparage that. It's just to say that oftentimes churches that are that la large tend to be very commercial. Yeah. Yeah. Which, <laughs> Keep going. I don't know how to say that nicely, and I'm not trying to dump on mega churches. I mean, literally, I've, I've been in plenty of small churches where there's no spiritual growth happening either, <laughs> and it's full of nasty horrible people so it's not as though the size of the church really the problem is humans right if humans course, are involved yeah. in anything we can find a way to mess it up um <laughs> it's just in what avenue are we going down it's like a uh it's the chaos theory but for humans humans uh mm -hmm. find a way to screw things up <laughs> um, absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah I, I don't think that mega churches are inherently wrong i always like if anybody ever talks to me about churches i always use the uh phrase baskin robbins church and for those of you mm -hmm. who are younger than me, you might not get the reference, but their uh, slogan was always 31 flavors. And I always feel like, you know, we can have 31 flavors of church. It's cool if you want to go to one with like 4,000 people and you really love it and you get fed. Or it's cool if you want to go to one that like just does country music or whatever, like find the faith community that feeds you and uh, jump in. Yeah, and I think the important thing to note is it's you're you're finding a faith community. You're not finding a place that's going to never challenge you or only give you back what you already think in your head. Amen. <laughs> it's never going to cause you to grow or it's never going to challenge your notions or what you believe about life. So you do need to be comfortable, and I think people need to have a safe space to explore faith. But a lot of places, and not just in faith, anywhere in life, like we don't want to have our little believies poked. <laughs> so we go places where they don't get poked, which is totally fine. Um, it's a trait of being human. But I don't know that it's really beneficial for us for living in faith community with one another. And that's the really important thing is community and being able to interact with people that are different than ourselves and still worship God. Yeah, yeah, that's super huge. Hopefully that's the kind of place that we can build or that we are building, you know, at different. And um, another thing I'm like really passionate about is something you just said is, I do think that we should all be involved and contribute somehow. There's like totally nothing wrong with just consuming. Like I know people want to, oh, consumerism. Blah, blah. And to a certain extent, like, yes, it can become too much, but like sometimes you just need to sit back and, and learn and soak up. But uh, whenever you can, I think you should jump in in some way and be a part of it. Absolutely. And we, we're very individualistic, right? In our culture. So we're like, what am I getting out of it? Generally yeah. people leave churches because they personally feel something wrong or they're bored or they're offended or something like that. Um, but I mean, that's, it's easy to do because Christians have a billion churches all over the place. <laughs> like there's literally hundreds of churches in St. Petersburg. I could go to any of them. 
And if one of them offends me, well, I'll just go on to the next one. It's no big deal. But like, think about it from a Jewish sense. Like there may only be one or two Jewish synagogues in an entire city. So if you disagree, (laughs) you're stuck there. Like you don't get to go anywhere else. You actually have to work out your interpersonal differences. And of course, we can look at it through rose-colored lenses, right? And be like, well, because they're stuck there, of course they're working it out. No, I mean, people can still harbor these feelings towards each other and, and not progress as people. But I think perhaps sometimes we abandon ship too quickly because um, it's uncomfortable to be faced with people who think and act and worship differently than we do. Yeah. It's one of the one of my uh, one of the things I say all the time is like in my own head I like to say I'm floored when people don't see things exactly the way that I do. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's silly, but like we that you know we all have that tendency to whenever we see something that we don't like we can we can cut and run. And I like what you said. You know, maybe we shouldn't do that quite so fast. I think it's a sign of respect to stay and attempt to further the relationship. So yeah. like we, I mean, and we've said this before, like we respect the Bible enough to interact with it and not just read it and be like, all right, that's what it says. Like we want to interact. We want to struggle with the text. We want to have it impact our lives. We want to think about it. We want to have different people voicing different opinions about it. We want to hear different readings. And that's because we love it so much and respect it so much. So if we take that into our faith communities, I think it's a can be a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, a sign of respect and also a, uh, admitting that it's not going to be different at the next place. Like, you're you're never going to find the perfect one. So might as well right. try and make it work. <laughs> what? I used to tell people, I used to do like a 101 class um, in a few churches. Like, welcome to church. This is what you need to know. And I would always be like, listen, if you're looking for a perfect church and you find one, like, don't go in there. Because you're going to mess it up, (laughs) which always gets people to laugh. But it's true. Like, right. We bring our own baggage. We bring our own pain with us everywhere we go. And, you know, sometimes we have to do the hard work of learning how to be human and learning how to be human together. Man, this is great. We just did like a 10 minute bunny trail. And like, I think the podcast is worth the price of admission for that alone. But since we're here alone but we're just gonna give you so many bonuses we're gonna give you you had the ears of the chocolate bunny we're gonna give you the whole body now (laughs) yeah we might as well talk about revelation since we're here (laughs) yes so this letter to the fifth church sardis um of course we have local flavor in every letter so (sighs) let's start there so sardis for a really long time was thought to be like completely impenetrable as a city It was sitting on the top of a really steep hill, and no one had ever been able to overthrow it. However, (laughs) about 600 years before this passage was written, um, the Persian army did one of those, like, movie invasions where they climbed a cliff in the middle of the night and it overran the city. That literally happened, and they completely destroyed and, like, shocked, and everyone was sleeping. Nobody thought that there was going to be anybody attacking them because they could see the Persian army and certainly they wouldn't try to climb a sheer cliff wall with their weapons, but they did and they conquered it. That's pretty baller. And so it remained, I know (laughs) it's definitely like something you would see in a movie. Yeah. And Sardis remained a pretty important city after that, but it, they never forgot that. So they always had sentries, et cetera, like looking down the wall to make sure that it wasn't happening again. 
But here, Jesus is saying, basically, the church needs to learn this same lesson all over again. Oh, they have a reputation of being alive, of being this fellowship where things are happening, things are happening, but actually they've gone to sleep and they need to wake up. Now, the charge that Jesus gives them is twofold. So first, their works have not been found to be complete, which is, a, I think that's a really funny way of saying your performance leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> <laughs> like you get a solid medium at best, like three out of five. You're barely being acceptable if you were getting reviewed for your job. But of course, that's not the thing, the sort of thing that Christian faith is, right? It's all or nothing. If you're going to be medium about it or do a mediocre job at it, then what is the point of even trying? Yeah, that's pretty much like my power zone in life is just doing just enough. <laughs> well, and I, I think that this can be used in a harmful way as well. So people have been like, well, um, this person hasn't read their Bible in a month and a half. So they're not putting in the work to be a Christian, which means they're not a true Christian. And I, that is ridiculous to me Yeah. Um, to think that something <clears throat> that we can judge another person's salvation. However... You can clearly see usually when people's hearts aren't in something. Okay. Yeah. And I, I like maybe that's a better way to put it. Like they're not putting in any effort because they literally don't care anymore. Right. Right. I was, I was thinking of like a church worker. Like I'm sure something like this has been used to be like, hey, uh, you know, especially right now, whenever the church culture and landscape is shifting so much and like, you know, we're not meeting in person. So a lot of churches are like scrambling to do online stuff and like the poor, like communications pastor or whoever it falls to is like killing themselves to get it done. And then the pastor just swoops in and is like, Hey, yeah, last week was pretty good. But like, I've seen, have you heard of elevation? Like our stuff should look like their stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I actually am friends with a lot of church workers on like Facebook and online and the amount of exhaustion going around between people who are like creative or doing technical work is just mind blowing Yeah, because people are just like, Oh, well we had church in real life a couple weeks ago. So now we should have like a full blown TV production. <laughs> I don't know. We've it's never done it before. Don't we love Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. But we can do it. An elevation does it so we can do it. Mm -hmm. Their budget is a billion dollars. Right. So I think that this verse can be applied in a harmful way towards people um, and and really used to crush people who are doing their best and who are giving their faith and giving their hearts and really trying to love the Lord and love other people. But at the same time, <laughs> there are plenty of people who use the term Christian or like to be part of that, I want to say community, but maybe like I'm trying to think of a better word for what I'm saying. Like to be part of the crowd <laughs> when it comes to that without really letting faith in Jesus impact their life. Okay, yeah. That would be a better way to put it. Yeah, they're just kind of surfacey, like it's not, yeah. Right. They're, yeah, they're just kind of it floating. It doesn't do any good to, to just kind of roam around looking busy. <laughs> but actually doing nothing. And here's a good example of this. Like if you are at work at your job um, and you're, you don't have any work to do, 
but your boss is there, so you're trying to look like you're busy, but you're not actually doing anything. That's a good example for what the church in Sardis was doing. They're doing all this little tiny busy work to appear like they are doing something for the Lord, but they're not actually accomplishing anything. Yeah, they're just staring at their desk, hoping the boss walks by. Right. <laughs> and so he's saying your, your performance of the gospel leaves a lot to be desired. And second, that... Jesus is saying some of the Christians in Sardis have allowed their clothes to become polluted, which it could be on the same vein, like spiritual laziness. Like if, just think of someone who can't be bothered to take a shower or wash their hair. <laughs> they're falling into bad habits. Like they're neglecting the things that really bring them closer to God and bring them into community in favor of busy work that makes them look good on the outside. Okay. And so Jesus is basically saying, if this continues, your church is going to suffer the same fate that the entire city suffered six centuries ago. Jesus is going to come like a thief up the sheer cliff wall, and you will not know what's happening until it's too late. Which is kind of scary, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to He's going to come and massacre your city. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't think that this we should picture this as the second coming of Jesus, um, his final return. Um, it seems here, based on the context, that this coming, quote-unquote, is more of a period of either persecution or just internal collapse because the church is imploding or drowning in its own inactivity. And um, I can't think of the word for this either. <laughs> the quarantine is a my brain i can no longer <laughs> use words the I church is essentially drowning in all of the things it's doing but it doesn't have any faith yeah and i see what you're saying too the the verse if you don't wake up i will come to you as suddenly as unexpected as a thief that seems more like specifically to them not i'm gonna show up in the clouds and judge the entire earth it's, it's like yeah it's not talking about right. that it's yeah it's like hey uh you need to get going or else i'm going to specifically do this Mm-hmm. But then it's not all bad, right? So if, if there's people in the church who wake up and they conquer, which is a pretty common thing in all of the letters to the churches, those who conquer, what do they get? So in all the letters, they get something else. But in this letter specifically, they're going to keep their clothes from being polluted and they were going to wear white robes and share in the triumphal procession when Jesus comes back. And this kind of... Wearing white robes is something you would do for baptism. It's something you would do for like royal processions. And of course, Christians weren't the only religion and Jews were not the only religion that practiced baptism. And generally you would wear white robes while you were baptized. And then what's more, the names of the people who have conquered will stay in the book of life. Now, if I say book of life, what does that bring? Is there any images that pop into your head? I just kind of think of like St. Peter at the pearly gates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of the play Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Which apparently I, I know that I've seen it twice in my life. And apparently the first time I saw it, I was four and I got saved afterwards. Like I went down to the altar probably because it scared me to death. Um, <laughs> I don't think children should actually watch that play. It's terrible. Because I watched it as a teenager and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is the worst idea. You're literally scaring people into Jesus. 
which who knows if that's real faith. But that we kind of get this idea of the book of life from here in Revelation, um, which actually it goes back to ancient Israelite thought. So in Exodus, there is a book called God's book, but it's not really an encouraging reference in Exodus 32 because in that instance, almost every single Israelite deserved to be blotted out of the book. And it was only by God's amazing act of mercy that they were rescued. But closer to Revelation, the there's the Greek cities kind of have an official register of citizens, usually. Now remember, everyone who lives in a place or everyone who lives in a town is not necessarily a Greek citizen. But if you were a citizen, your name would generally be in a book for that town. And if you did something... Uh, horrible and they were going to perform this sentence on you and like execute you for treason or something like that if you were a citizen they would actually blot your name out of the book before they gave you the sentence so that there couldn't be any stain on the reputation of the city itself (laughs) wow (laughs) that's um that's pretty intense like as, as almost as if they weren't ever there exactly it's like you never existed you weren't even here yeah what's the stain here oh don't worry about that that's nothing it's just censored, <laughs> like yeah. FBI documents. <laughs> yeah, it's redacted. <laughs> if you're hearing any crazy noises on the podcast, the power just went out in my house and came back on. <laughs> Whoa. I don't know why that happened, but now my doorbell won't stop ringing. Huh. That's cool. Maybe it's the Lord coming like a thief in the night. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably what it is. <laughs> anyway, so it seems like at least in this scenario in Revelation for this church, the names presently in God's book can be blotted out. Um, I don't think John is advancing some theory of predestination here. He is basically repeating a very standard early Christian warning. Don't presume that you belong to the community of the people of God, regardless of how you behave. Like you can't just say, oh, this I follow Jesus and then change absolutely nothing about your life or your practices or the way that you treat other people. Yeah. It's uh, another thing that I could see people using this for is like, um, you know, losing salvation or whatever, like, Hey, you're, you're a good Christian, but if you, you know, if you do this, we'll blot your name out from the book. And yeah, it doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like that's the point that he's trying to get across, but it like almost kind of does seem that way. So that's is why it's so important to know the, the local flavor stuff. Right. And I, I don't think it's necessarily a, the conversation about whether a person can lose their salvation is a little bit beyond the scope of what we're doing in this particular podcast. Um, but what I will say is I don't think it's a bad conversation to have, like we should be discussing it, but there are people who think that you can lose your salvation over literally anything. Like (laughs) you could sit, you could get, have a really bad day and like curse someone out on the way home and you just aren't saved anymore. And then on the opposite end of that spectrum, there are people who are like, no matter what you do in your entire life, you can never lose your salvation no matter what. And I, I think both of those are a little bit difficult to navigate, but I do, I do think that it is much harder to lose your salvation than a lot of evangelicals have pretended. Yeah. I mean, my guess would be, we're just, we're not even really thinking about it in the right way uh, to begin with. Yes. That's such a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Well, so and do- we're not thinking about it in the right way because we think in terms of I'm saved, therefore that means heaven or hell. Instead right. of I'm saved and every morning I am born again. Being born again is a continual process where God renews this life in my soul and it spreads and it spreads to my relationships and it spreads to the way I treat other people and it spreads to how I interact with the world and my job and et cetera and just on and on and on. We can never get to the end of being born again. Yeah, yeah. It's a for now thing, not for later. Right. It could be for later. And I think in Revelation we see that there is some definitely later is involved. But if you're in it for only later, then it's not going to have an impact on later. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the case of your name being blotted out. <laughs> right. If you're only in it for a get out of hell free card. Right. <laughs> then perhaps salvation has not come to your house. <laughs> Would be a, maybe a biblical way to put, to, yes. put it. Yes, S- salvation is not continually ringing your doorbell. Right. That was but a callback. <laughs> To a few minutes ago. <laughs> Wake up and pay attention. That's what Jesus is saying. Um, and of course, to those who stay clean, to those who conquer, he says, I will acknowledge your name before the Father and his angels. So not only will your name, it doesn't matter if your name gets blotted out from the citizen registry of Sardis, I will personally acknowledge you before the Almighty God and his entire court. That's pretty nice. Yeah. <laughs> pretty cool. <laughs> so now we get to move on to Philadelphia, which is a church where Jesus finds no fault. <laughs> nice. You want me to read this one? Yes, please. Okay. <clears throat> write this letter to the angel of the church in Philly, where it's always sunny, right? I don't think that's true, actually. How many church podcasts have included an It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia reference? Can I just say, and I know that this is probably an unpopular opinion because people love that show. I don't love that show because everyone's constantly yelling and it makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like most shows will at least have one moment where like the characters redeem themselves somehow. And Sunny always just doubles down on being terrible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say that they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Excellent. Wow. So there's a lot of stuff in this one that I'm familiar with uh, just from like Revelation talking points, basically. 
Okay. Give New, me a one or two. New Jerusalem. Uh, that's like something that I, I don't remember seeing a whole lot in, uh, in scriptures, other places, but I, I don't know. I'm sure probably it is, but it's right there. Um, also the, um, Satan's synagogue makes another appearance. I remember talking about that yes. last chapter. Um, yes, it's the letter to Smyrna. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And of course, just the, I feel like this is maybe the first mention of like maybe a, a universal Jesus coming back or maybe I missed it. Um, yeah, you could say that. Yeah. I feel I mean, like it is. It's not in the new Testament in revelation. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely the first concrete mention we have of that. Right. Now, he doesn't have anything to criticize. <laughs> Jesus doesn't have anything bad to say about Philadelphia, which is kind of delightful, actually. Um, but he basically says, you're having a really hard time. Just hang on. Um, and then uses some really specific metaphorical language, like I'm going to make you pillars in the temple of my God, and then goes on and on about the city and the new Jerusalem and all of that. Um, so the question becomes why, why, and we can think, oh yeah, they're going to be pillars in the temple of God <laughs> and just breeze right past it without stopping. But why would that be important? So remember we are in Turkey. Turkey is notorious for earthquakes. Um, just about 50 years before revelation was written, Philadelphia had suffered a major earthquake and most of the city had been destroyed and had to be rebuilt with a grant from Rome. Now, when an earthquake strikes and you have public buildings and temples and saunas and all kinds of things, what is left standing after an earthquake? Ooh. Um, okay, so... Don't overthink it. Yeah, the, uh, the pillars, I guess. Yes. <laughs> the pillars. <laughs> they might be cracked. And, and honestly, we can still see this today, like in the ruins that you can visit today in places in the Middle East and places in Greece and Turkey and Italy, the pillars are what are still standing, not the roof, not the walls, not anything else. So Jesus is promising the church in Philadelphia that those who conquer will be made pillars in the temple of God. Of course, not using stone or marble, but the temple, remember that Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple of God. And the pillars are going to be made of living beings, living humans. That's a and pretty, Jesus um, is the one, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, Jesus is the one who has this key of David, which is a reference to a, like, basically like a key to a city, a Royal key that will unlock any door, no matter what. And Jesus has opened this door for the Philadelphian Christians and he wants them to go through it. Nice. So basically the meaning we have here is almost certainly that they have an op not just an opportunity to stand firm, but to actually make advances. So they're barely hanging on right now. And Jesus is saying, keep standing, but take a few steps forward. You have a little tiny bit of power, not very much. You have enough to just keep you holding on for right now, but you have me behind you. And that is actually all that you need. Take courage, go through the door grasp the opportunity that you have to advance the gospel because you've already been so faithful in keeping the word of the Lord and not denying Jesus, even through all the persecution that had already happened. 
Now there's a problem, (laughs) similar to the church in Smyrna, the Jews seem to be using their civic status to block the tiny church's evangelistic efforts. And of course, remember, we're not imagining... uh, That's the Satan synagogue, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah. Not because they belong to Satan, yeah, because they are accusing the Christians of all kinds of things, which is in a function of the Satan is to be the accuser. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Now, remember, we don't have churches on every corner. This is just a city of thousands of people, um, not millions, literally a few thousand. The Jews probably have a few thousand people in the entire city and they have a couple of synagogues. They have their own community life. And then we have the Christian church, which is maybe like a couple dozen people total in the entire city. And so they're getting picked on pretty badly. And they're basically holding on to this totally improbable and kind of risky claim that the God of Israel rose Jesus from the dead. So who can properly claim to be the true Jew? And here, of course, the same as before. It's the ones who claim that Jesus is the Messiah are the true Jews. Yeah, which is new. Like that's, you know, the the goalpost got moved very recently. Right. Absolutely. Um, And so these Philadelphian Christians, or these new Jews who believe in Jesus, they're the ones who are carrying the name of Jesus as King and Lord, and they're going to be marked out publicly as God's people, as citizens in the realm where heaven and earth are joined forever, not just here on earth in their city of earthquakes. They're going to receive security and be pillars in a place where there will never be an earthquake again. They will be vindicated. They will be told that they are right, and they will share in the rule with Jesus. Nice. It's pretty good. The Philadelphians have got it going on. (laughs) And then finally, we get to the last letter of the seven churches, which is, in fact, my favorite letter. And it is the letter to the church in Laodicea. And so I'm going to read it. And this is probably the most well-known letter. And definitely one of the phrases in this particular part has been used probably, I don't know, in my life, I've probably heard it thousands of times from people. And it's usually in reference to people being lukewarm about their faith. Oh, the spitting him out of the mouth. Uh Uh-huh. Yep, yep. So let's jump in. It's my favorite one. I'm very excited about this. Okay. We're going to pick up in verse 14. It says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. Hey, can I pause you for I a know second? All the th- yes. Have you ever seen um, A Knight's Tale? Yes, it's been a long time, though. Okay, I feel like John is like Chaucer from that movie. I don't know if you remember, he like they just find him on the road and like bring him in as part of like the crew, and he becomes like the announcer for him. <laughs> it, and he just has the most amazing language and metaphors and uh, the, the way he introduces William at each um, tournament is like each one is better than the last. And that's how I feel John introduces Jesus in each letter like, man, this guy is a poet or he's, as we've discussed, uh, you know, having a fever dream on drugs <laughs> or or both. You know, there's room for both. So anyway, I just want I just want to point out, like, I can't believe the multitude of ways he can describe how awesome Jesus is. 
Yeah, he definitely is a poet. And he's also, from what we can gather, a very educated person and definitely from a more high status or wealthy family um, because he was banished. He wasn't killed. Yep, yep, yep. So I just, he I want had someone, access to some resources. I want someone to refer to me as the one who is the amen. Although I guess that'd be <laughs> sacrilegious, so never mind. <laughs> All right, we won't. We'll give you a pass. Okay. Oh, wait, I got it. I got it. I am the one who is the, oh, man. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> you were saying. Jesus was saying, I know all the things you do. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointments for your eyes so that you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Nice. What a great letter. Okay, so <laughs> tell me, how have you heard the lukewarm phrase applied and how have you heard I stand at the door and knock applied? Those are probably the two most famous phrases in Revelation. Okay, so everyone who's ever been in youth group I think has heard the lukewarm thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it'll usually be a youth pastor like talking to like the high school kids who are like kind of cool, you know, but they're like too cool to get involved and then so they're like, listen, don't be lukewarm. You got to jump in. You're a leader in your school. And if you jump in, all these other kids are going to follow. You don't want to be spit mm -hmm. out of God's mouth. <clears throat> um, same thing, like, you know, years later, um, maybe trying to rally some volunteers. Hey, you, you guys are coming in the church and you're just sitting there and you're just consuming. It's time to it's time to not be lukewarm and step up. I don't know why I'm being Southern. That's probably offensive <laughs> to someone. <laughs> Um, it's okay. You're from Florida. Technically, okay. that is in the South. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so that's that's kind of what I think about when I think of those two things. Look, I stand at the door and knock. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I just, like, when I've heard that, it's probably been, like, uh, maybe some kind of Calvinist-type people uh, who are, like, oh, Jesus is the one who initiates the salvation process by standing at the door mm. and knocking. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Or just like, you know, hey, you're being a knucklehead. Stop, again, going back to youth group. Stop going to these parties and drinking. Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. You need to let him in. <laughs> yeah. Yes, those are all very delightful. I haven't <laughs> thought about it in terms of Calvinist, Calvinism or predestination, but that's an interesting rabbit trail that we yeah. could go down. Um, so these phrases are... <laughs> abused i think perhaps in the church and it's mostly because the local flavor of this letter is not being understood so laodicea has probably the most local flavor of any of the letters to the seven churches i'm not sure why um it's also the most 
it's the harshest and the most intimate with Jesus talking to them. So remember in the last letter to Philadelphia, we knew that they were devastated by an earthquake about 50 years prior. However, there was another earthquake not too long after that, and it did all kinds of damage to some cities in the area, did some major damage to Laodicea, and all the cities were calling on the emperor for grants to help them rebuild, etc., except Laodicea, who were rich enough not to need any help whatsoever. So it tells us a lot about what we know about Laodicea. It was one of the most important trade routes in the entire district. It stood at the junction where people would come together. It was the banking center of the entire region. It had a huge medical school, specifically where people would come to train as eye doctors. And they also had, the farmers in Laodicea had developed this special prize sheep that had black wool. They made all this beautiful clothing. And so they were known for having this fine, very fancy, wealthy Laodicean black wool clothing. That's where I'd buy all my t-shirts from. (laughs) From Laodicea. Yeah. Yeah. If you've never seen me, I almost always wear black t-shirts. Mm-hmm. He does. Every time he wears color, we all point it out because we can't (laughs) believe what's happening before our eyes. So So they have all this. They have banking. Yeah. No, go ahead. I picked up on a couple things from what you were just talking about. The the people were coming for the uh, the eye uh, eye doctor school. That's not the right word. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I, I caught the uh, there's a whole reference in there about ointment so people can see. Mm-hmm. Um, you were talking about how they're uh, you know they're so wealthy and they were okay after the earthquake and there's that specific I am rich I have everything I want I don't need a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes but guess what the one thing they didn't have was um water oh okay they did not have a good water supply they laodicea has a, a river near it called the river like Lycus, i believe i'm not sure <laughs> um but basically the current is not very strong and during the summer it would dry up almost completely There would just be no water whatsoever. And so there's two other places where the city of Laodicea could get water. One was to the north on a, there's a city called Hierapolis, um, basically on a cliff. It has a set of hot springs that are still there to this day that draw tourists from all around the world. Um, And this water kind of, you can even see spilling over the cliffs is full of minerals. So it leaves the cliffs like shiny and white. That's cool. Because of all the mineral deposits. And so they built aqueducts to bring this hot water to Laodicea, which was about four or five miles away. And you can still see the aqueducts with their insides covered in mineral deposits. They're still there, still ruins. Cool. But guess what happened to the water by the time it went five miles to Laodicea? Yes, it would cool down and probably become lukewarm. It was lukewarm. And what's worse, the concentrated chemicals made it completely unsuitable for ingesting or drinking. Unless you wanted to make yourself physically ill, you could not drink that water. Nice. Now, to the south of Laodicea is Colossae. It was destroyed by the earthquake and had not been rebuilt at the time this letter was written, but it had a beautiful supply of water. It had water flowing down from a mountain, um, cold, like snow melting streams of water. And so they built aqueducts to 
bring the water to Laodicea, except it was 11 miles away. And when you're bringing cold mountain water across a desert for 11 miles, it turns lukewarm. What? At best. (laughs) (laughs) Every time. Yes. So that's really remarkable that this is the most like famous part of these seven letters that Jesus is saying, you're not cold or hot. I wish you were cold like the water that you can drink from the mountain, or I wish you were hot like the hot springs that are really good for people to sit in. But instead, you're lukewarm. And in fact, the contents of your existence make me sick. (laughs) I literally want to, you're making me vomit. (laughs) because the minerals were in the water and it would make you sick. So the contents of the lives of the Christians in Laodicea make Jesus want to vomit. So um, whenever I, whenever you first hear this taught it, like you, you think of hot and cold as like, I wish you were either good or bad Um, Mm -hmm. or like you're neither good or bad. And like, then there, there's that verse that I wish you were one or the other, which that doesn't make any sense. Like, I wish you were bad. I like, I was thinking about right. that as we were reading it. I was like, does he really wish that we were bad? But whenever you just <laughs> explained it like that, like hot or cold are maybe not metaphors for good or bad. They're metaphors for like usefulness, maybe. Yeah. Or commitment almost. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. I feel like good or bad is a terrible, like we always want to assign dichotomies to things. We're like, yes, this is either this or that. And we're like, you either love Jesus or you reject Jesus. There's no in-between. You can't Hmm. be lukewarm. You can't straddle both sides of the fence. Well, okay. (laughs) But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I wish that you weren't watered down. (laughs) I wish that the sun or the climate that you're in has not affected you so much that you've lost your entire purpose of existence as water. (laughs) And then that's not all. You'd think that would be harsh enough, but no, (laughs) Jesus is not pulling any punches in this letter. He says, you say I'm rich. I've done well and I don't need anything. So apparently this smug, like well-off attitude has rubbed off on the Christians in Laodicea as well. And Jesus is basically saying, you think you're rich and clothed in fine clothing and that you can see clearly, but in fact, you're pitiful And more specifically, you're not rich or poor. You're not able to see or understand things. You're actually blind. And you're not clothed in beautiful, wonderful, You're naked. Fine. You're naked. (laughs) (laughs) This is like (laughs) such a burn. Like Jesus is being really intense right here. So he's basically saying, you need the sort of gold that only I can provide, not the gold from your banking endeavors. You need security that comes from God, not from money. You need different kind of clothes, not the black clothes of made of wool that were popular locally, but Crap. the plain white robes worn by people who were baptized. Mm. You need a different kind of eye treatment <laughs> instead of the one you can get from the local college. Yeah, and it's then very after uh... all of that. It's very uh. <laughs> Sorry, it's very um. Uh, you need a different type of water that will you'll never thirst again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And Jesus says all of that to them. And then he basically says, now you know how I treat my friends. <laughs> <laughs> like he says, 
uh, in verse 19, I correct and discipline everyone I love, which is actually really interesting. It's not as though Jesus is giving up on them. It's because despite everything, the Laodicean Christians are still on Jesus' list of friends. And Jesus is faithful even when we are not faithful, that he is telling them truly that they are wrong. And yeah, that's nice. Carries- it's like the, uh, what is it, the yeah. arrows arrows from a friend or like that sort of thing. Like mm-hmm. the, the real thing you don't want is for him to just be like, all right, I'm not even going to try and correct these guys. He still cares enough. Yeah, they're not even worth saving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the letter is, of course, the most striking description of Jesus that we've had so far and the most powerful promise. So we might think it's weird that this one church that is in clearly major trouble, it drew from Jesus the most intimate promise, but there's a lesson in that too. So Jesus says, I am the amen, the one who is true to his word, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. So if Jesus is the one through whom God's world came to be, and also the one who is creating a new world with resurrection, this puts (laughs) the poor Laodiceans and their lukewarmness into even more embarrassing perspective. Here's Jesus, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the creator and the redeemer of everything. And here you are, smug and self-satisfied, but actually (laughs) poor and blind and naked and pitiful. (laughs) And verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And I would say almost every single sermon I have ever heard on this verse encourages hearers to open the door of their hearts and just let Jesus come in. Yeah, yeah. Which is fine, but that's not at all what this passage is about. (laughs) Like, yeah, I mean, you should open the door of your heart and let Jesus come in. But that is not what is being said here. This echoes stories in the gospel and stories in the popular culture of this time that the person knocking on the door of the home is the master of the house, returning at an unexpected hour. So the one who needs to open the door is the servant who is supposed to be staying awake, guarding the house, waiting for the master to come home. It's Jesus' house in the first place. That's Hmm. the point. Our job is simply to welcome him home. We're not, it's not as though it's our house and Jesus is like, beautiful Swedish Jesus knocking gently on the door. He's a gentleman, you know, he's going to come in and sup with thee. No, it's Jesus house. And he's saying, you're falling asleep on the job, on the job. I'm knocking at the door and it's the middle of the night. And this is my place. You all belong to me because of what I have, the amazing things I have done for you. And you're supposed to be keeping watch and you've fallen asleep and you're not even opening the door to let me into my own place. Yeah. And what's cool is if we do stand watch and we hear the knock and open, like I would imagine most people would expect the boss to come home and be like, all right, thanks for opening the door. You're relieved. Like you can, you're off, you're off duty now. Just get out of here. But that's not what he says. We're going to sit and eat a meal together as friends. Yes. And that's the most intimate promise in all of the seven letters. After the harshest criticism, he says, if there's any of you who are paying attention, if there's any of you who will open the door, I will, we won't, we will share a meal together. And remember, servants don't share meals with their masters. Right. This isn't just a like flippant thing to say. Yeah. yeah. You're not getting burgers with your bros. 
you're like no it, it would be like a very political statement kind of yeah and so not only do you get to share this intimate friendship meal with Jesus but if you share in that meal you will be strengthened to conquer just as Jesus conquered which of course is through death and that will give you the most extraordinary privilege you will share Jesus throne <laughs> that's a funny it um, says, uh image <laughs> Yeah, I mean, don't think about it literally. It's definitely a metaphor. But in verse 21, it says, those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. He's basically saying, if you just would wake up, my friends, you could have more than you could ever possibly imagine. And then add on top of that, that I will literally share ruling the new kingdom with you. It's pretty strong. Yeah, <laughs> that's the best promise. And then, of course, it says the seven letters are ended. <laughs> <laughs> let anyone with an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Yes, anyone with ears to hear, please understand this craziness that I just wrote. <laughs> right, but of course, they would have understood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, w- it would be like, you know, if we uh, wrote a letter to... Tampa and referenced, I don't know, what's Tampa famous? Thunder and lightning, you know? I will, my voice oh, I will thinking, be as thunder. <laughs> I was thinking, dear Tampa, you say that you are a wonderful city, but instead your congestion on 275 is possibly <laughs> the worst thing. You say that you are move, you're free to move about, but you're stuck in a traffic jam. Yes, you, you masquerade as a functioning body, but you are a malfunction <laughs> junction. Oh, yes. If you're <laughs> listening from a different state and you don't know what Malfunction Junction is, it's literally ranked as one of the 10 worst junctions, intersections in the country. Yeah. And I live and like we- a stone's throw away from it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the good news is I almost never have to drive on it. Yes. Well, <laughs> the letters are concluded. I have so many options on what I'm going to name this episode. Like I'm leaning towards (laughs) malfunction junction. Um, We could do a reference to Tiffany's lukewarm hotcakes. That was fun. That was a good episode. Yes. Laodicea is my fave. Forever. Forever, ever. And that's it. That's the end of chapter three. Cool. There's still plenty more in Revelation. From here, we kind of start moving into the larger movements that are not short and sweet like these. Um, They tend to be a little bit more complex and quite intense, which is exciting. Well, I'm going to bring my big boy pants and I'm ready to rock. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Everybody, thank you so much for, for joining and listening. And let us know if you have questions or if you like it. Hit us up on social media at Diff Church or on email at hello at diffchurch.com. Yep. See you later, friends. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Bye.